the competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussion with the best players on the planet. Your hosts, Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, John Damaris. And joining me this week in lieu of Nick Nanavati is the one and only robot, Richard Siegler, to help us break down our discussion with Mark's Adbeck list, who I'm going to say, I know he didn't actually finish second at the uh, Dallas Open, but narrowly lost to Jakari in the final round with an undefeated record. So second in our hearts, nonetheless. Richard, how are you? Can you tell us a little bit about Mark? And let's talk a lot about his list. I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about the Omnissiah today. The Admech is near and dear to my heart. And Mark Hertel has been running Admech for quite a while now. You may not have heard his name too often, but uh, if you started paying attention to competitive 40K towards the end of 8th edition in 2019, he started top three in GTs and going for those championship wins. I saw him in the southern U.S. circuit a lot. I saw him at big events like Pro Tabletop, where he actually played uh, Art of Wars John Lennon back-to-back games, which was crazy. And he's been on a tear since then. He has um, been pretty much nonstop going to some of the biggest events um, that have been happening in 2021. And he's been killing it. So we, it's a real pleasure to have you here, Mark. Um, I, before I turn it over to you with the first question, I do want to also say that uh, during this Dallas Open, a live stream, which we're talking about your list from Dallas Open in this session, I was really impressed by your sportsmanship. Uh, on stream, you were an absolute gentleman, even with playing the final two turns of the game against Sean Naden with about seven minutes on uh, combined. You were a gentleman throughout that, and I was just very impressed by how much you're an ambassador to the hobby. So why don't you start off by talking about your philosophy towards playing competitive 40K? Because I think that's something re- we really want to highlight here at the Art of War, and then I'll jump into talking about your admec list. So my whole philosophy um, is you, you, you play how you practice. And the way I practice is I want to play you at your best, and I'm gonna, even if you're making mistakes, like if you're making stupid mistakes that you don't know you're doing, because just like knowledge about my army i'm gonna help you out a little bit especially in practice games i'm gonna help out my opponent a lot because i want to play as if they're like the top level players this doesn't do me any good to beat someone who's just like newer at the game or maybe there's making tiny mistakes because you if you're playing a game at a tournament you, you're expecting your opponent to not make those mistakes so you want to play them at their best so that's how that's pretty much how i practice i practice basically like as if i'm playing on the top tables all the time well, I, I follow pretty much the same philosophy as you, and I think this is actually quite common among the top players. Um, so all of you listening, please do take note. Uh, gentleman conduct uh, typically dominates the top tables, and Mark, you were a perfect example of that at Dallas. Why don't we get into this admec list? All right, you- before before we get into the admec list, I just want to remind listeners that this is episode one of our podcast, where we're going to talk about uh, our strategy discussion. We're going to talk about what's in the list, why it's in the list, how the list is designed, what is it supposed to do in general. And then in episode two, which is available to patrons and through the Art of War uh, 40K website, we will dive deep into the details of optimal play and really talk about the nuts and bolts of how you play the list in certain matchups. Okay, Richard, go ahead and take it away. Uh, I'll, I'm done doing commercials for now. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's th- start the blessings of the Omnissiah. Now, Mark, what exactly was this list you ran at the Dallas Open GT? This list is a list I've been playing for pretty much almost the exact same list for about four months now. Um, and basically, this list is my take all comers list. This is my, this is my play the mission well. 
move around the table, hold objectives, shoot my opponent off the objectives, and then just try and survive. Try and play the mission, try and survive, and table my opponent all at the same time. You want to give us a breakdown of kind of the base units that are involved in your list, uh, break, broken down by detachments? Yeah, so it's one attachment. It's a um, Admic Battalion. Um, Stiges 8, so I'm not the normal Mars that most people take, um, but I take Stiges 8 because that gives me a nice juicy minus one to be hit outside of 12 inches if you're shooting at me with ranged weapons. And that is my philosophy of this list is if I survive longer to kill you, I can kill you a lot better than if I just shoot you better. So what it does is I've got the um, I've got the Tempest Dominus with the Exploding Sixes Warlord Train. I find he's about as useful as Call. Um, in the Mars list, just called by himself because for him as a warlord, he gets the exploding sixes for pretty much my three disintegrators. Those guys are my anchor in my list. Um, but let me keep going through the rest of it. Uh, I've got the Techers Manipulus. He gives me extra man- maneuverability and he gives me rerolls to hit rolls for my Admac infantry. I've got three Skatari Vanguard squads. They're my infantry filling out the battalion. They are good for just holding out the, my backfield, keeping people from deep striking back there, and then moving up to get those objectives when I need them. Um, in my elite slots, I've got one 10-man unit of Corpus Guard Electric Priest. They do the shooting. I've got two units of eight full guard Electric Priests. They go up there and punch things really hard. And then in my in my fast attack slots, I've got two two-man Lascan chickens. Uh, so they're putting out four Lascan shots apiece. I've got one unit of three Cerberus Raiders. And I've got in my heavy support, I've got three Scorp- Scorpius Disintegrators. Then I've got three um, Decade Transports. They're three Dune Riders. And one plane. Oh, I've also got an Inquisitor. Cannot forget that Inquisitor, and we will be talking about the Inquisitor in just a bit. So, really interesting list. As you pointed out, you were going Stygis 8 uh, versus Mars, or the newer rule set for Metallica, uh, which was in play at Dallas. What are you, what's your decision process here of choosing Stygis? Because, obviously, Mars is all about firepower. Metallica, very recently, has added a lot of jank, really powerful um, stratagems, uh, especially defensive ones. Um, with the uh, Carcaridon book. So why did you end up going with Stygis 8, and why have you continued to, uh, to choose this one? So there's a really big reason for that, and that also comes into play with the minus one to be hit, but also the 9-inch pregame move stratagem that is only accessible by Stygis 8. Because um, what that gives me is that gives me ways to hide on missions where I would normally not be able to hide if I deploy on the line. It also gives me ways to pressure more things more easily than I would, would normally not be able to. Also, it allows me to basically screen off deep strikes for when I do go second. So basically, say someone has a drop pod coming in turn one with like a bunch of multi-belters, it allows me with my raiders to basically screen people out and prevent them to be able to shoot my tanks. Have you ever missed the firepower of Mars, uh, the no. mortal wound potential that they can do? And no. what do you think of the Metallica rule set? Uh, have you even considered it, or you just didn't have enough playtesting? Um, when, the, when the new codex comes out, because I don't know what I'm going to lose for, um, for Stigis 8, I don't know if I'm going to keep the pregame move or not. Um, I am probably going to switch to Metallica because if Metallica keeps the same dogma of um, advanced no penalty for assault weapons, all of the Cognos weapons are becoming assault. That means Cognos Lascan is becoming assault. Cognos Heavy Stubbers is becoming assault. Um, I can basically play the same list of points don't change, just change everything to assault, and then I'm just like, I call advanced as tank, and I don't care about shooting you. So that would be really big if, if um, depending on how the new codex comes out for Metallica, but I find the um, the minus one to be hit is really critical in a lot of in a lot more matchups than the um, just the stratagems from Metallica. Okay, and to be fair, you've mentioned it a couple of times. The Stygis pregame move stratagem seems to be essential to how your list plays and why you've chosen St- uh, Stygis eight. 
So why don't you talk us through how you use this stratagem? What are the different units that you typically use it on? Are there some, um, some times where you actually just avoid using it um, and just play very defensive? Uh, because it's used when you place the unit, correct? Yes, when you deploy the unit in the deployment zone. Yeah, in the in deployment, you have to use it. So you don't know if you've gone first or second yet. So how do you use no, this no. this stratagem effectively? Um, typically, what I do is I'll use it. Um, I typically always do at least two of my boats. Usually, a usually the ten man Corpus Guard Electric Priest boat, and usually one of the full guard Electric Priest boats. Because I'm typically not going to be charging you with two um, Corpus Guard, the two of the full guards turn one. And the Fulgurites, they only have a 12-inch, uh, Corpus Cari only have a 12-inch range, so they need to move up the field really quickly. But what it allows me to do is it allows me to move up those boats behind a wall or next to a wall, because what also that combos into the um, the get-out-within-six-inches um, stratagem, which combos with a zero-CP stratagem from a Dune Rider to get out without having to roll a single dice. So I can get out, I move up nine inches, get behind another wall, and then I get out, all right, we kill that tank because you've got to kill that tank. Now I'm behind the wall that I couldn't have been normally behind, and now I can't shoot my guys. And then they're going to come party next turn. Yeah, that's one of the funny interactions that Admech got in Engine War was the zero CP strat for the Dune Rider to be able to disembark without having to roll for models. And uh, that actually combos with the ninth edition generic stratagem to uh, emergency disembark six inches, which it's it's a clever little trick, but... If you're running the Dune Riders, you're using it pretty much every time they're destroyed. Um, now, do you I use the stratagem on anything else besides the Dune Riders? Yes, but usually not. Um, usually, it's if I need to, if I really need to, like get behind a wall or hide behind something, I'll use it. But typically, I only so in my game against Sean Maiden, I used on my two last can chickens because he because I needed them to move up on that deployment field to move up and get line of sight to his um, artillery tanks. His um, Night, night spinners. But usually I'm doing it only on the melee boats. That's usually what I do 90% of the time. I suppose, speaking as a new player, this gives you the ability to not get behind on scenario early too, right? It gives you the option to, you know, some of those hold two scenarios for where you have to get on a lot of objectives quickly. It, it allows you to get your stuff into a safe place so that you can move on to the objectives without over committing early. Does Oftentimes, I'm even able to get onto the objectives themselves with the pregame move. Um, with the ponies, they can get move up 12 inches. On the um, on some of the missions where it's like you hold the objective at the start of your command phase, I'm able to start on those objectives outside my deployment zone with like on two of those objectives, and then it's just like I quote move off the objective. I still control it if I go first. Do you feel it's this stratagem is necessary for Admech as a whole to put pressure on the mission points? and not fall behind early? It is very critical. I don't know if you would say necessary, but I found that in the way my list plays, it, without it, I wouldn't be able to apply as much pressure on my opponent. Because oftentimes my opponents would be like, all right, cool. He can move up nine inches. He can disembark within 10 inches because it also move from the manipulus. And then he can get also a charge too. So basically I can charge you on your deployment zone turn one. So that forces a lot of people to play back more. Okay, excellent. So just the threat of it has been a, a lot of value in uh, in many different matchups. Yeah. Now, uh, shifting on from the stratagem, let's talk about some of the list choices that you've made here. Um, only one unit of Severus Raiders. This is a unit that we've seen people try and run the gigantic units, uh, maxed out Severus Raiders. We've seen you know three by five models. You have a single three man unit of Severus Raiders, uh, an amazing unit for Admech overall with its speed, uh, its ability to pregame move 
as well as uh, that stratagem to fall back after it's declared for the first time as a charge target. Only one unit, Mark. What's going on here? So you, you mentioned that stratagem. That stratagem can only be used on one unit. So basically, like if I want to be really aggressive with like multiple units of service raiders, well, one of those is going to be charged. I can't use that stratagem twice. It's also two CP, so I don't want to have to be doing that over and over and over again. But mainly the biggest thing that it comes down to is I don't have enough fast attack slots. And you wouldn't want to sacrifice some CP for, to go for an Outrider to get more? I usually start the, I start the game with 10 CP. I usually am infiltrating two to three tanks, so I end up with seven CP. And I am usually running out of that CP by turn two. By turn two. And that CP is very critical to do a lot of things my list needs to do. Like the getting out within six inches, automatically exploding tanks. A lot of the problems that I run into is I run out of CPs, like change mechanical or reuse mechanical twice and be like fall back and shoot because I just spent too much CP and it's like um, I would I'd much rather have the CP. Yeah, Admech are one of those armies that has a ton of really useful one CP stratagems, which leads me to the next list choice you've made here, which was a single Archiraptor Fuselov. This is, in my opinion, the best flyer in the game. It's a 130-point bomber, and it also has two amazing utility strats, being able to turn off aura abilities and also the ability to seismic bomb something to reduce its mobility. Why only one bomber here? One bomber feels like your opponent goes first, has a lot of guns, they just shoot it off the sky, and you don't actually get the value out of it, whereas redundancy of having two or three of them, which we've seen in some, uh, especially Mars, uh, heavy lists. Why only one of the bombers here, Mark? The biggest problem with me and my list is I'm playing the mission. The bomber cannot hold objectives. They, if I'm running three bombers, two bombers, that's another unit that's not, because it's 130 points, and it is a great unit. It is a great utility unit. But if they're focusing down my bomber, they're not focusing down the troop transports, they're not focusing down a lot of other stuff in my army that's already pregame moved up nine inches and is also threatening those objectives. Like, I can hold I can hold an objective with a 100-point Scorpius Disintegrator, or Scorpius Dune Rider, I can't hold an objective with a plane no matter how good it is. Uh, totally fair points. I would have two counterpoints. First, that it does get you very easy engage points because um, you know flyers are accepted from a lot of the, the mission points and scoring of 9th edition, but they do allow you to score engage in all front points, which we, when we get to secondaries, I'm sure we'll talk about um, your decision to go for things like domination versus engage. Um, for now, I think having that flyer there is also useful in a second way, and that's because it has such a large base. Even though uh, enemy units can move through the fire bases, they still have to end an inch away, so you can do some really useful move blocking, and apparently, Nick Nanavati told me, one of the things you did supremely well in that game was move block his home objective with your flyer. Uh, do you think it would be ha more useful to have like a second flyer just in case uh, to move block a second objective and really start denying prime importance early with the rest of the pressure your list brings? That's the that's part of the problem is that everything in my if I so basically if I were to add another bomber I would have to lose 130 points elsewhere and the the problem with that is that everything in my army is so finely tuned to basically doing everything perfectly I have no points for really I don't really have a lot of redundancy per se but what my list does is it does everything well with what it does. And basically, you go, going back to your point about the engaged all fronts, I usually, even with the list the way it is now, I usually will either max engaged all fronts or score like 14 to 13 points on engaged all fronts consistently with the list the way it is now. That's with only one plane. So you wouldn't feel the need to actually uh, buff that aspect of the list? All no, right. because it already does everything the way it does. Excellent. John, any questions about these? No, no, not at all. Um, what I'm kind of generally curious about, though, is for our newer players, could you give us just an overview of 
how everything comes together and what the what the list is designed to do. Like what what are because from my perspective, what it kind of looks like is you're presenting a lot of threats and causing your opponents to be a little bit uh, conservative on their deployment because you can both shoot them hard and have these units that can charge them in their deployment zone. And because of that conservative deployment, it allows you to get out ahead on primary and play the mission extremely well. And so I'd be curious, like, what what is the purpose? Like, what is the overall strategy of the list? The overall strategy of the list is to keep the disintegrators alive for past turn three, if I keep all three disintegrators alive past turn three, I have usually won that game. Um, because what happens with my list is it is super efficient with the disintegrator. The Scorpius disintegrator is probably the best point-for-point point model in the game, in my opinion, combined with the Checkers Thomas with Exploding Sixes Willow Trait. Because that thing will kill everything. And with three of them, you kill everything even more. The, the thing is that like what a lot of my list does is it puts out a lot of shots, a lot of like low, like some high strength but low AP, multi-damage shots from the Scorpius Sangrators, and puts out a lot of just single-damage shots from the Dune Riders and the plane. But what really happens is basically it's all just a little puzzle. They all come together all once. So what happens is is you move up the you move up the, the melee boats and you move up the um, the 10-man priest squad, and they have to be dealt with. But if you're dealing with them, you're not dealing with my shooting. And my shooting is very, very, very powerful. And basically, it really hurts me when I lose a Scorpius Sangrator. Because I really do count on those to win me the game. Because the amount of damage they put out consistently in every single matchup is incredible. Do you feel that there's ever a weakness relying on the Scorpius tanks? Because like you said, the Belarus Energy Cannon is an amazing weapon. Indirect fire is just so powerful in ninth edition, especially on the shorter table size. If you have the Manipulus there for plus 6-inch range, pretty much nobody, unless they're standing at the very back of their deployment zone on something like a Vanguard deployment, they're not getting out of range of your Scorpius tanks. So, However, it's AP1. And you don't have fabrications of the artisan here to add an additional AP to that. Do you ever feel that good armor saves plus cover are a real downside of the firepower you have in this list? Usually, no, because in most um, in most real person events, if you're on cover, that means you're giving up um, something. You're usually giving up line of sight. What a lot of lists will do, especially your marine list, is they won't touch cover. They will just sit right behind cover. So basically, if you got your Vanguard bets and like your Blade Guard veterans, they'll sit right behind cover, not in it. And basically, it's like they got a two-up armor save anyway, so I'm just minus one AP. All right, cool. So I'm just hitting you, and every failed save is typically a dead Vanguard veteran. Um, that's just one example of it. But what happens is, is most people will try and not avoid touching cover so that they're hidden, and so that that helps with the with the three to three shots, the um, ignores line of sight shots. But once you do touch cover, there's a stratagem where if I put all my shots from Scorpius Disintegrator into one target, I ignore all benefits of cover. That includes the minus one to be hit from dense terrain. So that really isn't an issue. What what my list really does is weight of fire. Because like, yes, a lot of things like your Terminators and other lists like the, with the really dense blobs that won't die, those are really tough to deal with. But those lists I can usually outplay on the mission because I can move up, I can move up, I can outscreen them. So basically, if they start on the table, the plane can bomb them. The plane can basically half their movement. But like if Dark Angels Terminators, if they try to deep strike, they are not going to be anywhere except their own deployment zone with my pregame moves, or not even on the table at all. You could even potentially block it off if you go first. And exactly, the speed of the list. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, another, another interesting choice you've made here, uh, to your list design is taking one Corpus Gari unit versus two Fulgurites. Um, 
these the Corpus Gauri put out a hellacial amount of firepower. With uh, I do have two pieces. full grade squads. Uh, yeah, two full grades versus one Corpus Gauri is what I'm saying. Corpus Gauri yeah. put out a ton of shots, and your whole army is basically built around trying to put firepower all over the place. If your opponent kills one or two of your resources, oh wait, I still have three Scorpius tanks, I have these Corpus Gauri priests, you can still do a ton of damage in shooting. Why the decision to go for the two Fulgurite units uh, versus more Corpus Gauri? Because I need a melee hammer. Um, the Fulgurite Electric Priest, when they kill something, they get a three at pivotal save, and that that makes them super survivable. Those things, and those things, you do not want to get charged by them. Um, those things, um, even an eight-man squad, like even without the rerolls from the Tech Priest Manipulus, they their damage output is seriously cannot be underestimated because one of their biggest things that they've got is on a six plus to wound, they do D3 mortal wounds. If they charge it into a character or like your Vanguard veterans or Vanguard veterans, an eight man squad of them will typically kill an entire like 10 man Vanguard veteran squad. Because 16 attacks, rerolling all my hits, um, wounding on threes, six or D3 mortal wounds. Between already whittling down that squad from my shooting and then just charging in with those with those full rights, they will kill like any Marine, any Marine matchup for the most part. Have you ever felt that their, um, you know, fairly mediocre weight of attacks, only two attacks each, has been a hindrance in certain matchups? Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, but that's not what they're there for. They're not there to kill blobs. They're killed. To, they're there to kill elite units. The Corpus Cari do a lot better at killing blobs because they get the exploding sixes um, when they hit in melee too. Okay, well, help help me out, guys. I I don't know um, the <laughs> details of the Yeah, no, uh, the details of the rules for Admech, but I I have a definitive memory of them getting up to a two-up involve with electro priest can you still do that with these um yes you can um i don't advise it doing it because it's usually a waste of two cp because your opponent will usually just ignore them and with a three-up involve save they're pretty survivable where they'll usually they'll either be overkilled when they have a two-up involve save or they'll be underkilled with a three-up involve save you want to just explain for a more general audience yeah. people who are an expert in admic what are the stratagems that you're using and why don't you actually use the combo which would be, end up being 5 cp on the single priest unit so basically the um so basically you have the um full guard electric priest when they kill you in the fight phase they get their invul save from a 5 up to a 3 up for the rest of the game now there's a admic stratagem where at the end of your turn if there were, if the units within 3 if an infantry is within 3 inches of an objective you can spend two CP and give them plus one to all of their saves and plus one to their attacks until your next turn. Typically, you're, if you're on an objective already with your with your full grand electric priests, um, your opponent will just either ignore them if they have a two up will save, or they'll just be like, "I right, cool, I'll move an obstacle unit on this objective. Now it's mine." They usually won't just they usually just ignore them. So it's usually not worth spending the two CP to give them a two up will save as much. Fun as it is to have a two up and we'll save with a five feel of pain, it's usually just not worth the two CP. Yeah, and there are options where, when unfortunately the unit of Fulgurites doesn't finish off what they tried to kill, there's a three CP fight twice. But at that point, if you're going for the two up invul, you're going to be spending a five five CP total, and that's almost ne never worth it because Admech, like Mark has mentioned, has so many great one CP strats. Pretty much every single unit has an awesome strat. The Corpus Gari, for instance, have a one CP AP2 on their shooting attacks, which it completely transforms their shooting to be deadly against a lot of things in the game. Um, now, you mentioned your firepower. For a long time, autocannon iron striders were the way to go, particularly bigger units, and we've slowly st started shifting towards Drukari. There's a lot of raider-like units in the game. Harlequins have been doing very well for a while. Autocannons are amazing profiles into those. Why have you gone with two small units of iron striders and chosen the Laz cannons 
over auto cannons? So I first texted him to that. So I was running the um, I was running a big squad of auto cannons chickens before too, um, but that was before they did the changes to the um, to the while you stand you fight, where basically then it became your biggest most expensive unit became your while you stand you fight. So my while you stand you fights were always my disintegrators. And those things are the ones that rarely die. Those things are much less likely to die than even a bigger squad of chickens. Because the chickens are so flimsy. They only have a four-up armor save and a six-up invul save. Um, and they're only T6. But like the um, the disintegrators, I, I, my list is tacked so that the disintegrators are the most expensive units in my army. So basically, the last hand chickens are 150 points each for two. So they're also tied. So I just picked the disintegrators. Now, you asked as to why I had the um, last cannons instead of the auto cannons, and um, they're because not every army is Drukhari, and my list really struggles against like other vehicles, killing other vehicles. But if I only had auto cannons on the chickens instead of the last cannons, I would have a lot more trouble bringing down like knights or, say, um, just transports, other like marine transports, things like that. That's what they're for. They're, there is sort of a construction carfax unit, and they're also there as a um, just like bring, and they can even kill like Blakeguard veterans, Vanguard veterans. They're good at killing just like uh, those 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 guys, those infantry with like the four pinball save, two bomb saves. And they'll be especially good at doing that when they get their upgraded Laz Cannon profile of flat three plus D three damage. Oh, I can't and wait. Codex. Me too. And, and they're becoming assault. And they're becoming assault. That does that does lead me to a question. Uh, just as a general thing in general, auto cannons are two damage, right? And I kind of find. That the weapon, the damage profiles you want is either one or a lot. And what I mean by a lot is D3 plus three, D6, D6 plus two, um, because of Death Guard running around and other things that reduce damage by one. Is that something that's also affecting your guys' decision? That did affect my decision too. But the biggest thing with the, the one thing I'm always disappointed in with my list is the last hand chickens because they either overperform or they underperform. But the problem is, is that like I do need them because I need something that does what they do, and they do it best for what they do. I've been in the same exact place, Mark. <laughs> they either are amazing and just blow something away, or they don't even kill a raider. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, they also have uh, two stratagems that you could potentially use on them. One CP to give them uh, effectively plus two to hit, plus one to hit, but uh, plus two if there's negatives. Uh, involved and then there's also one cp plus one to wound against non-titanic targets do you typically use those on the smaller unit you almost always use them on the big units but with a two-man is it is it valuable enough or is it very yes it's still valuable enough because like then you go into something rerolling ones exploding sixes and then you're just you're pretty much guaranteed to know what you're going to do because we're when you're hitting on twos and wounding on twos you know all right i'm gonna put four last scans in there i'm gonna get four last game wounds and when you know what you're going to get it makes it, it makes it consistency and reliability is very important, and that's what that gives me. That's what those two strategies give me. Okay, if you're willing to spend those strats, is it fair to say that typically this list prefers to front load the damage? So you'll spend a lot of CP in the first like two, three turns to get as much damage on the opponent as possible. And if you don't have it late game, that's perfectly fine because you've done crippling damage. Do you try yes. and go for that killing blow early? Yeah, I try. I try. So my my game philosophy is I will sacrifice like points or I'll allow my opponent to score points early in the game if it means I kill everything that can kill me back. Okay, that brings me to a question for target priority. Are you prioritizing the things that can hurt do 
most efficiently deal with your disintegrators? Because you said that the list is sort of built around the weight of the disintegrator fire across five turns of the game. Um, are, are, is that what you're prioritizing? You're trying to deal with, uh, you know, the heavy weapons that are, that might trivially remove those? Um, if they have range to me, yes. Um, typically, I can like if it's like melt, if it's like eradicator multi melters, I can usually avoid them. I can usually um just like out stay outside of the range. But like um typically, when I, I do typically try and kill the most the things that are most dangerous in my opponent's list. Like if they've got like um whatever's most best at killing whatever I need to stay alive, I will kill that first. That's actually a really good forty k philosophy. <laughs> can you say that again for our listeners at home? I kill whatever is most best at killing me first. <laughs> Yes, I love, I love that. A little bit of a tongue twister, but yes, that's what I focus on doing. That that's usually my target priority because, like, it, it doesn't matter if they score like fifteen points for two turns. If they score zero points for the next two turns, which once again, yeah, front load the damage, but front load it against the their devastating firepower or their really critical melee units that are going to get into your army and you know start wrapping things and being annoying. Uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Now. We've gone through a lot of the admech decision choices in this list. There's one that stands out. It is the Inquisitor. Now, this is fairly unusual. You've seen it occasionally. You've gone um, not with an Ordo Xenos Inquisitor for the 5-up CP region, and you haven't gone for Draxus for potential fight last plays and the targeted smite. You've instead gone for an Ordo Malleus Inquisitor. Can you explain, first of all, why the Inquisitor itself, and then why the particular choices in the Inquisitor that you've chosen? So the Inquisitor is very important because without an Inquisitor... I would have no access to um, four deploys in the deployment zone, in the deployment phase. So what the Inquisitor has is they have, in the Inquisitor book um, from Pariah, um, they have a one CP scout deployed like a Space Marine scout, except they don't have to be nine inches away from enemy models, so they just have to be outside of one inch from enemy models and the enemy's deployment zone. But what's really important about that is, say I'm playing against a, an opponent with like um, six units of Nerdlings or something like that, they can basically screen in my four my four deploy from my pregame move from the city state stratagem because that is done after we roll to see who goes first. But what the Inquisitor does is she gives me a pocket on the field. She gives me basically a corner that I can that I'm guaranteed to be able to move up in. Um, so that's the main reason why I bring an Inquisitor. But what she also gives me is with an order of malice Inquisitor, she gets two psychic powers and two denies. And when you're playing against like a bunch of like um, warp timing Morty Magnus lists. When you can deny warp time even once or twice, that is very big. They basically you win the game right there on that one die roll, and basically um, the two denies is very important. But what's even better about her is she has basically a targeted smite and smite. So she can she already has a targeted smite with the um, castigation. I just have to roll three to six, and I have to roll above your leadership. And on three dice, it's usually pretty easy to get um, two three mortal wounds through. And with smite, she's basically doing two three mortal wounds every turn. And so that's really good. That's because like I'll, I'll kill like Archons, which is like, all right, uh, Smite, uh, Cascation, and your Archon's dead. Take him up. Yeah, having watched your live games, I saw it in action multiple times. <laughs> Just the Inquisitor comes up, uh, your firepower, um, the previous turn had kind of started whittling down their units, and then... All of a sudden, it's your next turn. The Inquisitor moves advanced or just moves up into a nice little pocket and then goes ahead and uh, drops 2d3 uh, mortal wounds onto this uh, two-up invuln Archon, gone. Um, and that helps you get rid of those without having to rely on the mortals um, from the Corpus Gari or the Fulgurites. Um, so I, I loved seeing it in action. I thought it was absolutely crucial. And it does open up a second thing, which is psychic secondaries for your list. So we're going to head over and talk about secondaries. Let's talk about the Inquisitor's role in Psychic Secondaries. Do you ever pick them? Um, and Honestly, no. 
No, I have yet. Don't to go for psychic, psychic ritual. No, With sir. the pressure that you put on midfield, you don't think uh, it's ever worth it. I think if you go for it, you could. Like, I think there's certainly options for it, but I think like the way I play my list is it already does the other secondary so well um, that simply I don't need to because like I don't I don't my philosophy is I don't like to set units aside to basically perform actions because even if it's just like a 45 units sorry banger that's just doing an action that's 45 that's 45 points that's not shooting something that's not. That's not hiding. That's not doing something else. That's very important for my list, because like um, even the forty-five minute, uh, forty-five points, our Vanguard squad puts out fifteen shots, and they can do two damage on six of the wound. Uh, that's totally fair. Well, speaking of which, if you have these other amazing secondaries for the list, why don't you break down the secondaries that you typically choose, why, and how the list is designed to facilitate you scoring those particular secondaries? The two secondaries I pretty much take ninety-nine percent of the time time is while we stand, we fight, and engage in all fronts. I'll typically do either assassinate or the mission secondary, or maybe bring it down. Depends on what my opponents bring. But ninety-nine percent of the time is um, while we stay, we fight and engage in all fronts. Um, while we stay, we fight is down by the secondaries because that's the whole, whole point of my list. It's my whole point of my list is I might as well be hit. So like your multi meltas and stuff that's reliably killing me with like your space friends is not reliably killing me. Helps me survive. And like I hide my secondaries maybe turn one, maybe turn one if I need to. But like by turn two, they're out in the open and they're just shooting everything. And then they're just like not dying. And they will they they are so hard to kill. Like my opponents always have so much trouble bringing them as integrators that those things will consistently score me 10, 15 points. And you think that um on the whole, are you aiming for getting 10 points out of it, or is it always you're trying to get 15 and I'm always trying to get 15 points because if like I said earlier too, if I lose my disintegrators, I'm losing the game anyways, because I'm losing that firepower. Now it's, they do, rare, it's rare that I win a game if I lose a disintegrator turn two. Fair enough. But even like going into turn four, is it ever worth trying to get the extra firepower out of them? So for instance, Always, because like like I said before, I usually kill everything that can kill them reliably by turn two. Fair enough. And I, I'm going to press you in the in the matchup section. Absolutely. Uh, part two of the podcast about you know indirect fire and some of the more mechanized lists that just anti tank everywhere. Yeah. So we'll talk about um, that uh, a bit later. But engage while we stand. What's that third one? What's that third big one? Or is that where you're just trying to get a couple points out of it? And in that case, which secondaries do you try and go for? I go for whichever secondary gets me the most points from my opponent. So basically, if my opponent has four characters, I'm taking the assassinate. If they've got a bunch of, if they got five characters, I'm 100% taking the assassinate. Because I'm going to reliably, against most opponents, I reliably table them usually by the end of turn five. And then they have no characters left. Um, but like, I, I go for whatever gets me the most points. Because the main biggest philosophy of my list is I try and score high. My whole list is designed to score high because I do really well against meta lists. Um, I do not do well against skew lists that are like skewed to basically be like, oh, I'm all anti-tank or I'm all anti-infantry. I do well against those take-all-comers lists that are good against everything because my list is also a take-all-comers list that I can do well against everything. But my list does really well against lists that are basically mobile, that can move up the table and basically just like do a lot of things. And those are the lists that will score basically like 199 points Round one of them in a tournament. So basically, I'm trying to ma- I'm trying to play against those lists. So I'm trying to score as many points as possible because those are the lists my list does really good against. I do not do good against knights. So I try knights. Typically, will not score um, over ninety points. If I if I'm scoring over ninety points consistently, I will dodge knights. So you're saying you want to play me, Mark, with my very safe, <laughs> even keeled type of lists? Yes, I would, I'd rather play you, Richard Siegler, than some <laughs> random guy who's brought in like um, on two thousand points of imperial fists. Well, I love the confidence from you. Um, any other 
uh, secondaries that you may lean towards, or it's, it's pretty much always going to be a kill one. Whatever, if they have, you know, three or four vehicles, you'll go for that over trying to pick an action secondary. It's pretty um, much just avoid the actions. Um, it depends on the mission, but like um, if it's an easy mission to do um, banners, I'll do banners. I never do the boy scramblers. I never do the boy scramblers. Zero percent of the time do I do the boy scramblers. Never fall into the trap of getting a zero on that one. <laughs> no, I don't even like getting ten on it. Like I just rather get higher points on it. But my list isn't designed to do scramblers, anyways. It's designed to basically. I, I don't. I don't. I never. Um, outflank anything. I always start everything on the table. Yeah. Have you ever thought about adding in the rust stalkers for the one CP strat to redeploy them if they're within six of a board edge? The problem. The, the problem is that what do I lose to get that? Uh, you probably have to do double patrol. No, no, no. But like, I'm at two thousand points. What do I lose? Other units do I lose to get them? Oh, uh, fair enough. Yeah, you'd probably have to be cutting something like. And that's that's the whole point of the um the other plane too is that I have to lose a this I have to lose a Dune Rider and something else because it's hundred thirty points. All right. Well, let's let's talk about that then. I think that's a good segue. What are other thing? What are the other variations of the list? Have you tested? What other items have been swapped in or swapped out? <laughs> and have you thought about making any changes after you saw the prominence of Jakari? Are, are you going to massage your list? Because I think there's going to be a, a wave of Jakari coming for a while. We're going to see a lot of the best players playing Jakari. I think we are going to see a lot of people playing Jakari um, for, until the GW does something about it. And I think they'll do something about it. I just don't know when. That's the problem. But the thing is that I've already do well against Jakari. And it's like, it's a hard matchup, but it's not unwinnable. So there's no need to really change the list too drastically. The and the, but the thing is that like if I attack too hard against Jukari, then I'm losing the matches that I'm already winning. And and I have been thinking about doing things like adding in like units of the um, maybe dropping the last game chickens, add units of maybe another Dune Rider, and maybe some of the flying the flying Skatari infantry because you can just got to put those guys up nine inches and then get them out. And basically, you're guaranteed turn one charges. But the thing is that like. I need the last cans. Like the last cans really do serve a purpose in my list, and I can't just throw them out. Uh, I, I think that's fair overall. Is that this list has been fine tuned over many months of you playtesting? Uh, you've probably played what like fifty plus games with this this exact variation. So you're you're an absolute master at this particular variation of the Stygies Eight list. And every single thing you've made small tweaks over time, but you've come to this solution, and it's already so efficient. You. You will what beat the three Drukari players in a row? Four. At Dallas? Well, four. Three, three and Sean. Yeah, three and then and Sean had a you know he had Drukari in his list. Yeah, he had some of the best Drukari units <laughs> in his list. So it just it was just John Lennon at the end. And would you make any changes to deal with his particular list? Or you no, think because he was playing, playing Nick's list? Uh, I would change how I played the mission. I I tried to play that mission defensively. Which I never do. I've never tried to play my list defensively. I'm always aggressive. I took um I took while we say we fight, I took minimize losses and I did um raise banners. Those are three object secondaries I almost never do. I should have just done um while we say we fight, um engage on fronts and assassinate. And I would have done a lot better. Okay, fair enough. Because so then actually, I could have played my mission, then I could have played the list the way I'm practicing playing it. Well okay, that supports then. exactly what you've been saying, is that the going against the what this list is designed to do is going to punish you each and every time, um, even in a high pressure final situation. Stick to your guns and stick to your game plan. Which John, uh, I'm sure you can talk about how this podcast has has done many episodes preaching just that thing. Exactly, but actually, that that leads me to a question: What was it about the finals and John Lennon's list that sort of 
sent you down this rabbit hole of maybe going against what the list was designed. I'm curious it to get into wasn't, it. It wasn't so much John Lennon's list. As it was the mission. The mission is basically one where you can just sit back and basically just like, as long as you don't die, you're pretty much fine. Like I didn't do engage all fronts. He didn't do um, the um, heard the prey secondary. So I had no reason to try and even deny him secondary or deny him primary points. Cause I could just sit on two objectives, shoot him off a third objective and just be like, I cool. I score 10 points. You score 10 points. And just do that throughout the entire turn, throughout the entire turn, throughout the entire round, and then just get a lot of secondary points by make by just like not losing anything. Because like if as long as I just don't die, I will get more points on secondaries. But I didn't do that. I kind of did that. I deployed like that, but then that's not how I played the mission. That's not how I played the game. I played the game like I did by instinct, um, basically just moving up the field and just trying to kill everything. Um, but like I didn't, I didn't play defensively. I set up defensively, but then I didn't play defensively. You know what I mean? Okay. So do you think that one of? Uh, I'm sorry. This is just more of a new player question. But sorry? I, but you could have you could have deployed defensively and played defensively and played to that game plan and been fine. Or you could have deployed aggressively and played aggressively and played your normal game plan and probably been okay. But because you're sort of halfway committed to a plan and switched to a different plan, that that's probably what messed you up the most in that that's game? That's really what messed me up the most. Is I, 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 I set up, I deployed, and I chose, I chose, I had a game plan going in there to basically play defensively, but then I didn't play defensively. That's the biggest thing. You can't win if you're trying to, you can't play defensively if you don't play defensively. So that was, that was the biggest thing is that I really didn't follow the game plan. I went into the, I, I didn't do the sec, I didn't do the game plan that I did the secondaries. That's just secondaries for. Um, so if I were to go back and change it up, I would basically just play the mission the way I'd normally play my mission. Would I have won? I don't know. Um, I still could have lost, but at least I would have been playing it the way I normally play it. That's interesting. And I think that's a, a really good tip for newer players. And that is um, you're you're better off sort of, uh, I mean, you want to be flexible in your play, but you don't want to accidentally um, hose yourself by by making a decision to change how you're going to play that doesn't support the secondaries and such that you've you've sort of gone into the game with. And and choosing secondaries, I think, is one of the most critical skills in ninth edition that is sort of not talked about maybe as much as it should be. Would you agree with that, Richard? Absolutely. It's it's choosing your secondaries and then how you deploy your army. Those are setting you up for your entire game. If you're trying to switch philosophies after doing those two things, you you have to either be severely outplaying your opponent, which is very hard to do at the top tables of a, a GT or major final, and you also have to have the tools in your list to do it. Now, Mark's list does have a lot of tools. It's just, when do you actually make that switch? And have you deployed too defensively? And especially with secondaries, like while we stand, minimize losses. I really don't ever want to be bringing out my Scorpius Disintegrators. That's far too valuable to lose, especially against the, the Dark Lances. So based on that, uh, you know, I, I completely agree with Mark's assessment here that trying to do too many different things, you know, if your list is designed around a particular game plan, which we've seen, as Mark has mentioned several times, every single unit is doing a particular thing. The list plays this way, and it does it supremely well. It's one of the best lists in the game for doing this particular style, this aggressive uh, board control style that has a lot of shooting supporting it. Um, trying to do a, a different style uh, in a finals, uh, especially, is, is probably uh, a bridge too far. And it was. It was a bridge <laughs> too far. So I, I'm sure Mark will never make that mistake again. And everyone makes everyone makes the mistake at least once, never again. <laughs> um, anything else that you learned from the Dallas GT about this list? Um, um not really. Any other just like, um, 
I, I played a couple games in another GT um, the two week, uh, the weekend before this. I guess I played a couple games against Shukari there, and that so basically I kind of knew what to expect going into this. So um, I kind of had a surprise against Shukari already, um, but like yeah, the list performed exactly as I thought it would. Um, basically, I did it. I went to I went eight. I went seven and one um, at the top table. I lost my last round. The list performed the way I thought it would. Like. Honestly, I thought I had a good chance of winning that going in there. You just have to have confidence when you're going into these things, too. Because, like, if you go in there and you're just like, oh, man, I'm going to play Sean Dayton. I'm so worried. I'm so, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, he's my hero. You need to be like, no, I'm going to beat Sean Dayton. I'm going to play Sean Dayton. I'm going to roll good. I'm going to go first. I'm going to beat Sean Dayton. You need to have that kind of attitude. Because, like, otherwise, you're just going to fall into a trap and just be, like, too scared and, like, second-guessing yourself. Definitely. And, you know, uh, the first step is the knowledge game, just being able to understand lists like this so that it's not a mystery when you're going in. So podcasts like this Art of War podcast are designed to give you that foundation of knowledge to be able to play these top table games and have the confidence in your own list. Now, uh, Mark, that's kind of been the theme throughout here. Um, Confidence. What is your next event? And are we going to see this list? Is it going to be the Atlantic City Open? Um, So you're actually going to see this at the Maryland Open um, next weekend. Um, the exact same list, exact same and, list, point for point, no changes. And after that, it'll be to be determined when we see that glorious Admech Codex come out. We will see the glorious be on the side. Maybe the um, maybe the commentators will release it soon. Um, but like, um, yeah, as far as like, um, as far as I'm concerned, this list is pretty much as optimized as I can get it. Because like, I don't think I can get it much better than this. It just becomes a different list at that point, right? It really does. John, anything else from you? No, I think it's that time of the show where we start talking about episode two, where we're going to talk about how to beat this monstrosity on the table. And if you want those tips and tricks, you're going to have to become a patron or see us on the Art of War website. Richard, do you want to give that website out for everyone? Definitely, theartofwar40k.com. Check it out under the shop. Yep, and then you can also sign up for the War Room there. Richard, why don't you tell them about the benefits of that really quick, and then we'll move over to Episode 2. Definitely. The War Room is where we do our um, teaching services. We do uh, up to six clinics every week. We do a Meta Monday and a strategy session taught by Nick, John Lennon, or myself on a particular topic, either macro or micro tactics. And then we also have a special coaching match, uh, which is either tournament stress testing of lists, or it's a coaching match match designed to teach you the particular skills of you know ghost combat tricks mission playing you get to ask us all sorts of different questions and uh it's a blast so uh please join us in the room it's a wonderful 40k community and it is based around giving you the knowledge to compete for winning gts and majors and uh, just as an aside being a customer of the art of war for a long time the coaching games are by far the biggest value in my mind for the war room and the reason why is you get to watch top players but not only do they play the game but they tell you exactly what they're thinking they're like well let's see i could move this unit over here to stand on this objective what does that do in this game you know it forces my opponent to do this which i kind of like oh wait they might do this which i kind of don't so i'm not going to put this unit over here instead i'm going to come over to this other objective with this different unit and here's why and they tell you your entire their entire thought process you learn so much just about how top players think about the game and and it's sort of like learning by osmosis like you're you're sort of absorbing a lot of things that you don't even realize you're absorbing it's very very powerful teaching okay well that's the end of part one where we talked about strategy uh we'll see all of you patrons on part two for everyone else we'll see you next week thanks for joining us for another episode of the art of war 
Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under, where we break down armies and new rules. Theartofwar40k.com. This episode was brought to you by the Competitive 40K Network.